Welcome to the Good Life EDU podcast presented by the Nebraska ESU Coordinating Council. I'm your host, Andrew Easton. Thanks for joining us as we discuss the latest in digital learning across Nebraska and around the country. All right, I'd like to welcome everybody back for another episode of the Good Life EDU podcast. And this is part four of a four-part series where we are covering different aspects of our ESU network statewide. We dabble in a lot of things with our, our ESU colleagues, everything from technology to our staff developers to the SEL and wellness. We've covered those three topics previously. And today we're going to delve into some conversations around special services, special education, and have three unique conversations at three different ESUs about some of the ways in which we're providing some supports in those spaces. And so to start things off today, we're getting a chance to visit with Joe Haney of ESU9, Director of Special Services there. Joe, great to see you. Welcome to the pod. Andrew, I'm so proud that you're able to, I'm just happy that I get to add a little bit to your podcast. That's something that uh, I'm very excited about today. Uh, and me too. I got a chance to visit with Joe a little bit at the AESA conference in December and was uh, just so impressed and grateful to have gotten a chance to learn more about the work that Joe's doing at ESU9 that I said, absolutely want to invite you onto the pod so we can talk today a little bit about paraprofessionals. So we're going to get to that conversation in a second, but for people who don't know you, Joe, can you give us a little bit of your background in education? So I grew up in, we're going to go way back. This is, this is going to be a bit of a deep <laughs> dive here. All right. Uh, I grew up in Ocano, Nebraska, uh, 150 people that used to live in Ocano. And then I went to high school at Callaway High School. And then I promptly moved away and went to grad school at Shatteron State. I went to grad school at the University of Wyoming and ended up staying in Laramie, Wyoming for about 20 years. During that time, I worked in a developmental preschool as a speech language pathologist. And then I worked in a residential treatment facility for deaf and hard of hearing students. So kind of a cross between Boys Town and the uh, YRTC. And while I was there, I uh, became a deaf and hard of hearing teacher. And then I went on to uh, become a principal. And I was also a special education director there too. So wore, wore lots of different hats. And, and then about six years ago, moved back to the delightful state of Nebraska into the ESU 9 area as a speech language pathologist. And then there was an opening here at ESU 9 for the special services director. And I have had the pleasure for the last four years of being here at ESU 9 in Hastings. Great uh, to have you as a colleague here in our ESU network. And as somebody who was previously a building level leader and obviously has your special services background uh, to talk about paraprofessionals, um, I guess, first of all, what is the role of a paraprofessional? I think that's one of the, the issues we have uh, kind of continuously through the school systems that I've been part of is that the role is so varied. Uh, technically, they are assigned to support students with disabilities that are of a variety of different backgrounds. But oftentimes in Nebraska, we see our paraeducators with um, preschool students. So in the preschool classroom and supporting that classroom space. And um, then we see them with uh, like specific students that need more one-on-one -on -one support. And so that's where everything becomes really varied because those students could maybe have some physical needs. Um, so where the para was helping them kind of uh, maneuver through the building even. Uh, or feeding, or there's just such a huge variety of different things that one-on-one -on -one paras end up doing in our school systems. We have paras that help with MTSS and reading programs. Uh, so there really is, there's a huge variety of different roles that a para ends up having in our schools. 
so then where does the role of a paraprofessional overlapper meet the uh, ESU service agency level in education, right? Because it would be that the, the local schools typically hire their paraprofessionals, um, yep. but there's also some potential trainings or, or some interactions there to kind of bring those folks along. Because as you said, their roles can be very specialized and very diverse. Well, in our programming, sometimes we'll have paras that are part of that. So um, if we have life skills programs, then we'll have paras that are part of, of that piece. Um, then we'll have paras that are part of, you know, if we have a, a behavioral program that the ESU runs, then we'll oftentimes we'll have paras that are part of that process too. In our school systems, we end up uh, doing a lot of supports training-wise um, for paras. For example, at ESU uh, 9, we have kind of an onboarding para training every year. So the new paras come in and we walk them through. We have a uh, para handbook that we utilize and uh, we kind of walk them through that. And can you speak a little bit maybe to the, the significance or the importance of that training uh, to help those individuals out? This is where uh, we're thinking about cautionary tales for uh, paraeducators. And the cautionary tales come um, about when we have paras that don't really understand the profession, you know, because uh, as a paraeducator, you just have to be a paraeducator. There's really not a whole lot of background and emphasis areas. Oftentimes, especially in our smaller schools that are more rural, we might have a paraeducator that is a friend of a friend. We've had paraeducators that were board members' wives or board members' husbands. And uh, it just is a whole variety of different backgrounds and ability levels that our paras come in with. And training and professionalism seem to be at the heart of issues that occur. And so there's a couple of things that I was just thinking of uh, having issues with paras. I was in a school district where paras weren't even allowed to be part of the IEP team when they met because there were issues. Because our paraeducators end up really attaching to the kids that we work with. But as, as a teacher, as you know, Andrew, you can't just, uh, you just don't attach to one kid, you attach to a classroom. But our paras, they end up really being good advocates for our kids. But sometimes at an IEP team meeting, that's not the best place to do that. And so there was some issues. And again, it all really boils down to training and figuring out what those roles and responsibilities are. I uh, was thinking, what would be the best thing? What would be the best thing for our, our parents to have? And Iowa actually has a good idea on what to do. They have an associate's degree that a pair can go through. And it kind of gives you that general idea of what a para does. And then you can go on to go into more specialized programming for that para. And so in my mind, I'm like, gosh, I really wish that Nebraska would be able to do something of that nature because then it would give us, you know, because there's been times where I've had teachers that, that are paras too. And there's a huge difference between those two kind of subsets. The, the teacher has all that professionalism that, that's been kind of drilled into them from schooling. Um, where kind of your off the street kind of para does not have that. And either that's, you know, a training issue that you tried to have time to, to put into place, which is always the huge barrier that we have is how do you train your paras? They end up being so vital to how that classroom works and how they're able to um, work with their students that our school systems don't want to let those paras out of their building um, because they play such, you know, vital roles. And so then you go, okay, well, can we, can we push in and do more video help or, uh, you know, there's just a whole lot of variety of things that we can do to help them and support them. But it's just been a huge challenge to try to figure out how 
how do we free up the time? How do we free up the space to get that training put in place? Yeah. And I know too, I am nerdy and read a bunch of different <laughs> things over the course of my day and came across an article not too long ago from frontline education that was talking about uh, all the different disciplines or different roles in a building and whether it's turnover or shortages and, and paraprofessionals actually came in number two on the list of shortages in kind of your you know, traditional building uh, math teachers were the hardest ones to track down but uh, paraprofessionals in second in the, their particular poll. And so I'd imagine with, with that turnover rate, it only makes the challenges that you're talking about all the more challenging. I talked to a life skills teacher this last month, and she's had five paras this year. I, I've talked to a couple principals where they just are having, especially in the rural areas, they're just having a heck of a time, especially now. Uh, oftentimes, there are some of the most challenging positions in your school system is your paraeducators and quite rightly uh we pay our people at mcdonald's often better than we do our paraprofessionals right now and so it's it's really uh, a challenge for them and uh not only that we don't provide benefits very well um and so they they end up having the you know the most challenging positions um, with some of our most challenging students they kind of historically don't get the training consistent training um, that we would like them to have in the, in the classroom. And we don't give them uh, very good pay or benefits. And so, you know, there's, I, I think that there's kind of a perfect storm there for having a shortage. Yeah, that's interesting that you bring that up too, because my, my mom works in another state, but in an elementary, and they are losing some of their pairs to their cafeteria, actually, <laughs> because of the way in which those roles are paid and the benefits that come with it are greater than the support of the kiddos in the classroom. Um, and that it's interesting, yeah, to think about that. <laughs> and so in the midst of those challenges, you're talking also then about the ESU stepping in and providing those trainings. What um, can we nail it down a little bit more in terms of what those those trainings look like? Because as you said, it that's got to be a really fine balance that, that you have to strike there between something that is so specific because at times they are maybe serving, you know, one or a small handful of individuals with very specialized needs versus some that maybe are being more broadly, I guess, with, with a larger number of students. If, um, if you're handing me a, a magic wand, Andrew, and I'm, I'm gonna kind of wave this magic wand, sure, yeah, yeah. Uh, then what I really would love to see is in a, in a perfect world for our, our parents to come in with that good background. So to kind of have that you know understanding of how uh, our school systems work in a different way. And people that have been in school systems for a long time think in a specific way. Uh, we have a very systems way of thinking. And when you're new into that uh, system, then it takes time to really understand how does a classroom run? And you know what are the expectations of that classroom teacher? And what is my job with this student? Because oftentimes, again, had the experience this last year when we we're doing observations for a classroom and the students really has a lot of challenging behaviors in the classroom. And the para really, uh, that was one of the things, it was like, a, it was almost like a confession that she had made um, that said, I, I don't know what I'm supposed to do here. Um, I feel really lost. I've only been doing this for two weeks and this kid is walking around doing whatever he wants to do. And I, uh, I, I don't really know how to control this. And I, and I don't really know what the teacher wants from me day to day. And so it was really kind of a, an eye-opening conversation that we ended up having with this para 
uh, because at the end of the day, when you're doing observations and things like that, you get to hear from, you know, you get to hear from the classroom teacher and you get to hear from the principal and, you know, like the classroom principal are like going, well, this, this para is really not stepping up and doing anything. This para needs to be doing a better job. But the para was sitting there going, I don't really know what I'm supposed to be doing here. I don't know what my role is in this situation. I don't really know how to work with a student with um, yeah, this student had uh, was diagnosed with autism. And I don't know, you know, when the student gets up and just starts wandering around, uh, do I follow them? So it was really having those really crucial conversations weren't weren't occurring in that system. And I think oftentimes don't occur. And, you know, oftentimes as a as a leader, you kind of think to yourselves, well, they're either going to get it or they're not going to get it. And we really what we need to do is train what the it is in that situation. And we need to be doing a lot of, you know, coaching and we need to be doing a lot of having those conversations of roles and responsibilities. And after that occurs, I think, then we can kind of get more into uh, the nitty gritty of this is how you support your student without going overboard. This is how you scaffold this. And this, you know, you can start using a lot more of that technical uh, jargon and uh, a lot of those different concepts. But I think um, at the beginning, it's super important to figure out those roles and responsibilities. Well, and it's great to know that ESUs are bringing conversations like we're having right now to the education communities within districts or buildings, but like, you know, across our state also to say, you know, happy to look into this and be a part of trying to help enhance the training provided to our paraprofessionals so that they can find deeper sense of purpose uh, and clarity in the work that they're doing in support of kids because it's so critical. And as a classroom practitioner, just I really appreciate it. I, you know, and I, I, I feel like I've been a bit negative uh, about paras, but I feel like the successes that they end up having are just really spectacular. I remember talking to one of the special education paras that I worked with a lot, and she was so good at what she did that it, it was just effortless. And you're just like, wow, she's just so good at working with kids. And, you know, she was so good at really understanding and, and getting a kid's level uh, and just making it just hard enough is that you saw so much progress. Uh, and, and I've known paras that were working with a student with high needs behaviorally, and then she would turn around and do reading programs, and then she was working in the library. Uh, and so it was such a variety of different roles just in one day that this para had that it was just, uh, you know, unbelievable. Uh, but I think, like I said before, I think one of the hardest challenges we have are additional training because they end up becoming such a vital part of a school that it's really hard for teachers, it's hard for administrators to not have them in the classroom. Absolutely. And like I said, it's really great. I'm just really grateful that we have supports across our state and our service agencies to be there to help provide some of those trainings and bring some of those important conversations uh, around supporting those folks that are in such a vital role. So, uh, Joe, I really appreciate all your advocacy uh, and sharing on this topic. Sure. And uh, I hope we can have you back on the pod uh, in the next few months here, even to talk a little bit more about some of the other work that you're doing uh, at ESU 9. I know I got a chance to listen to your session at AESA. Uh, but uh, thanks for contributing to our three-parter here on, on special services and special needs. Andrew, I'm so um, pleased that you had me on the show. Out 
excited to have part two of our conversation today as we're going to get into this next segment of the pod, talking a little bit about the Nebraska Center for the Education of Children Who Are Blind or Visually Impaired. And this particular location has a really interesting backstory. And so I'm excited to welcome Sally Schreiner, the campus administrator there, to tell us a little bit more about the special partnership that ESU4 has with the Department of Education to give a little bit of insight into what special education supports from our ESU network look like in that aspect of our work here in Nebraska. So Sally, welcome to the podcast today. All right. Thank you, Andrew. I'm glad to be here. Yeah. And can you give me a little bit of your backstory along with the, the backstory of the, uh, let me get the acronym right, N-C-E-C-B-V-I. Correct. There we Correct. go. <laughs> it is a, it's a mouthful. Um, yeah. Um, thanks for having me. I have been around quite a while. Um, I have been at ESU4. It'll be 29 years. This year will be my 29th year at the service unit. And before that, I have education degrees from UNL in Lincoln. And uh, I was a business education teacher. And actually, I taught typing. So that speaks to my age. Kids now, our kids don't even know what that is. Uh, (laughs) But it was typing on typewriters, actually. Uh, But went on to get my master's degree in vocational special needs which led me to ESU4 to serve as a transition coordinator and worked with all the school districts in Southeast Nebraska on a special education and transition services, which led me to the position here at NCEC BVI as um, things greatly changed in the 90s and to make it what it is today. So I've been here 26 years. Wow. And so tell me a little bit of the backstory for the center at which you work at. Okay. The school, actually, the original School for the Blind started here in March of 1875. Wow. So I know we don't have that much time, so I'll fast forward (laughs) through many of those years. The school underwent many changes in names, but served special education in the 1800s before special ed was known to public schools. And so been around for a long time. And the main mission was serving, it started with adults and children who are blind or visually impaired. And of course, the school piece stays intact. We'll fast forward to the 1990s, the legislature and the Department of Education made the decision that it was time to do a statewide study to how to serve the entire state more effectively, more students, teachers, families. And so they put together a study to look at what was needed and brought together stakeholders and wrote a new state plan for vision services, which was approved by the Department of Education and the State Board of Education in 1999. And at that same time, under the direction of Dr. Doug Christensen, who was the commissioner of education at the time, um, he was a big supporter of ESUs and worked closely with the service units and contacted ESU4 since the school, the brick and mortars located in Nebraska City in ESU4's territory. It was his vision to connect the School for the Blind to service units and take the budget line and contract with ESU4 to operate and manage the School for the Blind. And that way, instead of it being a state-run facility, funding still comes through the Department of Ed to ESU4 but ESU4 would manage the people and the programs and the services. And so that all started July 1st of 1999. Wow. And, you know, honestly, Sally, we put this entire series together and we've had episodes on technology and on our staff development affiliate. uh, And this one obviously uh, centered more with special education and special needs. 
And it is just fascinating to see how statewide we're invested in this shared work, but at the same time, regionally, or even within each ESU, the services can be drastically different. And this being a prime example of that. Absolutely. Uh, and so I uh, appreciate you sharing a little bit more detail about that with us. And, and one thing that uh, I'm curious about, maybe this is a bit of a simple question, but if a student is in need of the services that are provided by the Nebraska Center for, for Children with, that were blind and visually impaired, uh, how do they relocate or how do they get to school to receive those sure. services if they don't live close to Nebraska City? Sure. It's not a simple question. Um, it's very individualized. Uh, first of all, a couple of things you said there. The first part is it is a very unique partnership. And you're right, ESUs are all ESUs, but some are vastly different. That makes ESU 4 very different to have a statewide program as well as a residential school under its wing. Um, as for schools for the blind, it makes this um, Nebraska's school for the blind very different because no other school for the blind is operated by an intermediate agency such as a service unit. And so they're all operated very differently in the country. So Schools for the Blind, when I have that hat on, is very similar to ESUs. We all have a mission to support teachers and students and teaching and learning, but we all look differently. As for the School for the Blind component, we have six major programs and services, and we call that our wheel. We developed a diagram with the state plan all those years ago, mainly for Dr. Christensen because he truly loved symbols and diagrams, but it really has turned into our working document that we use for everything. And one of those six programs is the School for the Blind Center-Based Program, which going back to your, your other question then. So we do have students from a distance. It varies. We have students who are local. We have students from Iowa because they do not have a residential school. So we partner with Iowa on a lot of things. But we do have students across the state and they come in um, various ways. There, It's not a, the student comes here for their entire program. It may be part-time. It may be short-term. It's a revolving door. We have parents who drive students. We have school districts who bring them in and yeah, honestly, we have had some families who have relocated to live closer, but with special education, the center-based program is like, a, it's a level three special education program. Some service units have specific special education programs for kids. We do as well. Ours happen to be for kids who are visually impaired. The difference between other ESU level three programs is this is also a residential program. It's an extension of their classroom. They get to work on independent living. We have apartment settings where we try to live on lots of independent kind of things. Uh, when students are blind or visually impaired, they rely, we all rely on our vision to learn how to make our bed. And um, we've watched our parents do things or other teachers do things. We learn so much non-verbally through vision. And when you take that away, these kids have to be taught that very specifically and very specialized. So all of our teachers have the visual impairment degree and we work closely with the university and things to make sure our staff are highly specialized, highly trained. So yes, the kids do come in from all over and it's very individualized based on the, each student. 
Well, and as a former classroom teacher myself, I've always been really fascinated with best practices and the latest, you know, pedagogical movements or, you know, even as standards get updated. Uh, and so I would say within the work that those teachers are doing in support of those who are blind or visually impaired, what have been some of the recent pedagogical trends uh, that have come around trying to advance or enhance uh, the supports that are provided? Sure. And that um, that really does lend to the rest of our programs and services. Andrew, we do have approximately 800 students in Nebraska, pretty close to it. We have a small number on campus, but the bulk of those students obviously are out included in their local school districts. Mm -hmm. So many of our other programs and services are what we call outreach services. So we have staff who travel out to make sure we're supporting those students in the general curriculum in their local districts, whatever programs they're in, birth to 21. And so our staff may go out and provide specific training for the general ed teacher, the paras, the other supports, or we may be doing some direct service. We have orientation mobility specialist, and that is training to get from point A to point B. And for some students, that's maybe learning how to cross the street safely. So we're always trying to tie in what is needed for those skills for those students to be included in their district as well as included into the. So our outreach staff travel, they provide assessment evaluation services, consultation services, as well as some direct instruction. Also always on the hunt to try to find teachers to get them into the University of Nebraska. Lincoln has a visual impairment program and orientation and mobility program as, as graduate degrees, because we really have worked hard over the years to build capacity statewide to get the teachers at the local level. And obviously we're a rural state. We have a lot of teachers who are gonna be landlocked and stay there. We wanna try to find those teachers, get them the training to serve the students. As you were talking, I've remembered that we did a podcast with a student at Millard West who is visually impaired. Oh, Camille O'Neill. Yeah, we know about every kid in the state. So Camille O'Neill, she grew up here coming to camp. That's one of our other major spokes. on. So even if they don't come to school here, we work with many students in a lot of ways. So yeah, I mean, with a population of 800, I would imagine that you all get a chance to really uh, know most students. Is that? Yes, yes, that is absolutely true. Uh, we have our instructional resource center here. And that's where we have a registry where we keep track of all the kids in the state and their visual impairment, what their needs are for learning media, if they need Braille textbooks, large print, whatever they need. And so, yes, we do have a connection to every teacher and every student in the state. We also provide student and family support programs. And one of the things under that service component is summer camp. So when you mentioned Camille, we know Camille well. She's a senior this year, and she has come here for summer camp. Many times we have also a program called Braille Challenge, where students compete in their Braille skills. So Camille has come here for many of our student and family support programs. We've offered a lot of parent training and provide assistance and resources to parents and Camille's mom and dad were here. So Camille's grown up as part of us, even though she doesn't come to school here. Yes, we've gotten to know her and she, and she has done a fabulous job at Millard West and can't wait to follow her where she goes when she graduates. 
Oh, she's truly remarkable. And wow, talk about special services to be able to, you know, I, I just randomly throw a name out to you on the spot here in the middle of our conversation. Yep, know who she is, what year she is in school, kind of, you know, <laughs> a relationship with her family. And I just yes. what a testament to the amount of care and attention to each and every one of these students as the individuals that they are. Just a fun on the spot example. That was really great. Thanks for sharing about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. And you and you mentioned connections. You know, I always say ESUs are primary examples of build services based on relationships. And that is tied in perfectly as well here at NCEC BVI. The relationships that we've been able to build statewide with teachers and families and students has been incredible. And we always say it's a magical time of year, but we always say NCCBVI is a magical place because we get the opportunity to be a part of these kids' families and lives and their districts and all the supports that go around them. And we're always happy to be at the table and provide whatever we can. The time goes so quickly. And, and so we only have a few moments left here, I guess, to chat. And so I may, maybe you want to go here with this. What would you say to someone who, if they were to just ask you about what degree of meaning and purpose you find in your work? Oh, well, it's Andrew, it's interesting you asked me that because I, I am retiring this year. And so so it's even, the emotions are even ramped up even more. Um, however, it has, it's it's not a work, it's not career, it's, it's life and mission and purpose. Very fulfilling, very challenging. We've got a lot of challenges on our plate and coordinating with an ESU and schools for the blind across the country and all the districts, along with the Department of Education, we have to wear a lot of different hats depending on what situation we're in. So there, it's always full of challenges, um, but they always give us an opportunity to look at things differently and do things differently and recreate and reinvent. But the key is the relationships with Camille and many, many, many kids across the state like Camille that we get to work with them and their families. And I'm always in awe working with our families and our parents because we share those kids with them, but um, their stories are incredible. So I've been beyond blessed to have a staff that is so dedicated and won't hesitate to reach out to learn more constantly of how to serve our students because the changes and things that happen in special education, as well as in the world of visual impairments, changes all the time. So it has been a lifetime of rewarding experiences, no doubt. Sally, thank you so much for sharing that and for taking the time to chat with us today. And congratulations on your upcoming retirement. And I'm sure ESU4 and all of the affiliate groups and opportunities that, that people have to like work and learn with you and alongside the efforts that you're making will surely be missed. But I'm grateful to have gotten a chance to visit with you today and to hear your advocacy for uh, the meaningful impact that you all have with these mm -hmm. kiddos across our state. Oh, thank you very much, Andrew. Thank you. And now I can join Michaela and Stuart in checking off podcast off my list. Hey, there you go. <laughs> uh, yeah. All right, excited as I have Gene Anderson of ESU 10 and Brittany Shackleton of ESU 2 joining us to talk a little bit about part C part B, uh, and what that even really means, <laughs> and some of those supports that we're given uh, to our kiddos uh, from the time they're born, really, all the way through age 21, and so that'll be what this portion of our conversation in today's pod is going to uh, encapsulate, and so I'm going to actually start with Gene. Uh, Gene, what's your official title there at ESU 10, and tell us a little bit more about Part C. All righty. Well, I am Gene Anderson. I am the Director of Special Education at ESU 10, 
which means I lead the special ed department here, 65 people strong. And as you mentioned, we provide services and supports for kids with disabilities from the time they're born until 21. When we talk about Part C, we are talking specifically about children ages three and below. And Part C is actually just the title of the regulation. That's why we get the the name Part C. Uh, There's a lot of people in Nebraska that don't realize that public schools, educational service units, uh, in partnership with the Department of Health and Human Services, provide services to children that young. If we can find a child that young that has a or multiple disabilities, then we provide services to those children and to their families. It's called early intervention at that point versus special education, but we are providing early intervention services to kiddos age three and below and their families. It could be in the form of direct services and teaching the child to learn how to walk or talk, use words for communication. It could be helping parents learn how to navigate medical systems uh, if they need to, to access those for their children. So any number of things. It is a partnership at the state level. We have co-leads from the Department of Health and Human Services and the Nebraska Department of Education. And then at the local level, parents also will have service providers from their local public school system, as well as early development network services coordinators, which is a branch of the Department of Health and Human Services. And these services are completely free to parents. If they have a child with need, they are eligible for these free services while their child is three years old or below. When I think about services or when I think about kids in school, they show up at a building that is in their local area and that's where they would receive these services. I would assume that with this, whether we're talking about parents or supporting some of these kiddos, uh, is is that something that these specialists or leads visit those individuals at home? How does that play out? It's a perfect question, Andrew, because yes, we provide services in the home or what we call in natural environments. So let's say it's a a child who's trying to or needs to work on developing gross motor skills, the physical therapist may meet the parent and the child at the local park to learn how to climb on the equipment because that's a whole lot more natural environment for the kiddo than, you know, a school gym or something like that. So services for early intervention are provided in natural environments. Most often that's the home, but we certainly don't want to limit ourselves to that if there's other environments that the family needs support in. And I'll play off that last little piece you said there too, then with regards to the family support, what kind of strategies I'm assuming is what the parents would learn uh, in some instances or uh, yeah, what does that support look like for them? You know, it it's wide open. Certainly it could be coaching support. Maybe they're having difficulty supporting their child's behavior as the child is growing, or it could be coaching support as the parent is learning to help a child cruise furniture because gross motor is not a strength. It could be support in helping the parent to fill out job or housing applications if that's something that they themselves would need support in or accessing higher levels of Medicaid because the child has really significant needs. So the the services coordinator is really a guide by the side for the parent and the service provider, which is like the speech pathologist or the physical therapist, occupational therapist, even school psychologists, if we're looking at challenging behaviors, those are the folks that are really keyed in on what it is this child needs, 
They may provide support directly to the child and then coaching support so the parent can be successful until the next home visit. Interesting. And so what, and I know we're kind of doing this at 30,000 feet, right? There's so, so much good work being done within everything you said there from the various roles. Uh, What am I not asking though, that as we just sort of talk about this broadly, uh, that is important to understand about part C specifically. You know, I always like to stress that it's free. It's also voluntary. So if it is something that the parents are interested in, or they're interested in it right now, and then life gets so crazy for them, they need to back away from it. But in four months, they were like, wait, I miss that. I need that to help me help my child develop. They can come back. It really is a family driven program where, um, you know, mom and dad are driving the bus and we're along for the ride to to help sing the songs and cheer them on and and make it a, a better experience. Because if we can intervene early, one, we know that that is the most successful model as far as it gets us our biggest bang for our buck. But more importantly, it helps the littles, as I call them, be less behind when they get to preschool on up. And so we want to have this smooth transition off to part B, which again is a a term we use in education. But it means once they're done with part C services, if they continue to need services, we have this smooth transition off to the part B, which are the preschool on up to age 21 if necessary. And that's what Brittany gets to talk with you about today. How was that for a segue? Yeah, I think that's a pretty natural pivot to reintroduce Brittany here. And Brittany, will you uh, share a little bit about your role at ESU too? Yeah, I am an early childhood specialist. And so I've been working with birth to about age eight. So that third grade range, my role, I've been focused with working with the school age students there with the preschool and then supporting the special education teams, working on implementation of any strategies, any things new that they want to try working on there and looking at goals. So all over the place for a few, but kind of focused in on supporting those students with needs and that transition as Jean was talking about there. So. Yeah. And a part of that transition, this is something we were talking about before we started recording today, is a little bit of a shift uh, to thinking about those learners in more of an educational setting, right? Which just makes sense. I think given what Jean shared about whether it was a park or in their home, now we're at a school with other students and, and in a different environment. And so what does that kind of look like, I guess, that uniquely comparing part C to part B really for, for kiddos as they get started? We really look at serving them in their least restrictive environment. So they're around typically developing peers and working on those goals with their peers. If it can be simple, like a preschool classroom, if they're working on any type of engagement or communication that can be done inside a large group time. And maybe a student is using a big Mac switch to be saying a word of the day or saying hello to a peer there. So it's not being pulled out of the classroom to be working on different skills, but it's really embedding it inside their natural day there. So they have those peers they can model and then just keep continuing on with their day that way. Yeah. And in the same way that we did with part C, can we talk about some of the collaboration that, that goes on? Because I would imagine for classroom teachers to be optimal in their support of uh, students with special needs, there's always that uh, need for collaboration and conversations about what each child uniquely needs. And that's where I've been a resource for different schools to come in and be that sounding board and be able to kind of talk through what part of their day is an area that they can work on. 
Maybe they need some type of accommodation for a large group time, maybe a meal time. They need some kind of assistive technology to help be independent and get there by themselves and be independent eating. And so we can kind of be that sounding board back and forth between each other and to see what best fits the students' needs. Yeah. And well, and I'm going to ask one more question here too, specific to kind of your experience with this, Brittany, because we were sharing uh, ahead of this that you went from working in a urban, like big city setting to a little bit more of a rural setting where you're at at ESU too. Uh, and so what have you kind of gleaned from seeing this work in a broader scope, right? I think that anytime we leave one location and go to another, it's great that our ESUs and our ESU personnel flex to meet the local and like regional needs. Uh, and so what has that been like in your experience? It has been a learning curve. The needs of students are the same across the board. It's just being able to work with a student and fit into the different schedules and the resources for each district that they have available. You know, if not having a resource teacher every day or a speech pathologist every day, being able to embed in those learning opportunities for students, you know, the teacher where they're moving more into that provider role by coaching done by that SLP or the ECSE teacher. And Brittany, while you're sharing there, Jean was nodding her head. And I'm going to assume that as a director, uh, Jean uh, navigates probably a number of uh, staffing conversations is what I'll say. So Jean, would you speak to that for a moment, I guess, as being a part of what makes, I think this work kind of challenging at times is to get the, I would assume the right people in the right places. That is definitely true. And, and I'll tell you at the 30,000 foot view, that is an urban and rural issue. There's a huge shortage in the field of special education in our specialty areas like school psychologists, speech language pathologists, um, but also in teachers in general. So a staff shortage is certainly a looming issue for all of us. But then when you look at some of the challenges that are particular in rural settings, you know, I don't have to try to get across a metro area and deal with traffic, but I may have to get from the school that I'm serving, and then get 45 minutes to a, a home visit for a Part C family that's still within this same school system, because the school system covers 50 to 60 miles. And so to physically get the staff person from the school building to the home, there's, of course, the challenges of Nebraska weather and time, because when you have somebody on the road like that, that means they're not serving kids at that moment. They can't be, but we provide services to Part C children, like we mentioned, in their natural environments. So we do take the staff from the school to the home, not vice versa. And you just logistically, you have to be really good at that kind of problem solving to get those puzzle pieces falling into place and make sure all kids get what they need. And so thinking about that, then, as you mentioned, like getting the staff to these home environments, what other and Brittany, maybe jump back in with this one. What are some of the other challenges that we see, too, from that transition from Part C to Part B? Yeah, I can jump in. Um, you know, one of the challenges, honestly, is the parents are used to driving the bus. And so because Part C is such a family driven program. Now we're kind of asking them to hand control over to the educators. And frankly, that was hard for me as a mom. And my child doesn't have disabilities, but I always felt like I knew what was best. And so just being sure to have time to build that trusting relationships 
So parents know, one, your child is in the educational setting now. That's where their services are going to be. And the services are going to be direct to your child. We don't provide family services anymore. We have relationships, but we don't provide services to the family. And so just to build those relationships so the parents know that we care about their littles just like they do and want them to be as successful. And we know a lot about education and we're going to do it to the very best of our ability so your children are successful. Fantastic. Brittany, would you have anything to add? I think she said that perfectly, honestly. (laughs) Yeah, good job. Uh, well, and Gina, as you were talking there, uh, it made me think back to something we had said ahead of recording, but that Nebraska's got a specific special program when it comes to Part C as well. Um, so could you kind of enlighten us on that a little bit? Sure. There are very few states in the United States that are what are called birth mandate states, which means it's mandated that we find children with disabilities even as soon as they're born. You know, if they have a more significant disability, such as Down syndrome or cerebral palsy, as soon as we find them, we get in there and we provide our early intervention. We are mandated to do that. Public schools are mandated to be involved in that. And honestly, we love it because it allows us to build the relationships. It allows us to be prepared and have everything in place when this little does come into our preschool program. You know, honestly, there's times that Uh, here in the rural areas, a speech pathologist may have a student on their roster from the time they're 21 months old to the time they're 21 years old. But to be able to be a part of of a child's life and a family's life, it's just an honor. And that's what we work on. I get as a former classroom teacher, can I even start to imagine how rewarding that must be to be able to know a student for that long? Uh, as a secondary classroom teacher, because you get them for a year or maybe you see them in elective again. And it's really amazing when you can have two portions of a school, right? You're one of maybe five or 10 teachers they have in that school year. But like you said, there to go from 21 months to 21 years, uh, it just would be tremendous, I think, in terms of what we all go into this for, right? Uh, to connect with others and, and really foster along with them and their families, the best possible future for them. Uh, and that, that's really powerful. As we kind of draw to a close, because these segments are so quick, and I know that we're leaving a lot on the table. I'll throw it back to Brittany. Is there anything that we did not get a chance to talk about with regards to Part B uh, that you'd like to add or uh, from your experiences? It's just amazing to see the growth that every and all students has, whether they're with a student with an IEP or not they make such strides every single year. And even if there's any summer services provided, what is maintained throughout the year and then picked up and continued the next year. Gosh, as Jean was saying earlier, is you has 65, right? Special services, <laughs> individuals. That, so thinking about the collective impact of that across the entire state and what we as ESUs kind of step into, and that's just really just powerful, just powerful to think about. Uh, yeah clarify that's 65 in ESU 10 alone. Right. I don't know what your totals are for special services staff across every ESU in Nebraska. The numbers would be staggering. Yeah. 17 ESUs. So, I mean, if you start to even just parcel that out, right, that's, that is crazy. Uh, A parting message from Eugene, would you mind? 
I don't mind. Um, you know, oftentimes in, in an event like this, we talk about a call to action. And, and what I'm really going to ask for is, is a call to change assumptions, because there are people that will see or hear the term child with disabilities, and they focus on, oh, disabilities. And what we really ask people to remember is, this is a child. And it really doesn't matter if there's a disability, ability, a high ability, it's a child. And we want we want all of our educators to realize that all kids are general ed kids. They may get services for special ed or when they're little, little, they may get services in early intervention, but all children are children first. And if we can focus on that, we're gonna be a lot more open and, and strong in helping them to grow versus seeing their disability and thinking that they are somehow less than or limited by it. So kids are kids and that's my, my assumption I'm going to challenge for people, don't focus on the disability, focus on the ability. Absolutely love that. And a beautiful note for us to end this segment on. And so uh, to Brittany and Jean, thank you so much for the work that you do, for taking the time to share with us today and for being yeah, representative of the breadth of all the great work that is going on across the state in support of our students and kiddos. So uh, thank you both. Thanks, Andrew. 